So May 12th, 1789, there was a message delivered to the House of Commons in Great Britain. A message, a speech that eventually changed the world. Here's a portion of it. When I consider the magnitude of the subject which I am to bring before the house, a subject in which the interests not of this country nor of Europe alone, but of the whole world are involved, and when I think at the same time on the weakness of the advocate who has undertaken this great cause, when these reflections press upon my mind, it's impossible for me not to feel both terrified and concerned at my own inadequacy to such a task. But when I reflect on the encouragement which I've had through the course of a long examination of this question and how conviction has increased within my own mind, when I reflect especially that however opposed any gentleman may now be, yet we shall all be of one opinion in the end. When I turn myself to these thoughts... I take courage. I determine to forget all my other fears, and I march forward with a firmer step and the full assurance that my cause will bear me out and that I shall be able to justify upon the clearest principles every resolution in my hand, the avowed end, the total abolition of the slave trade. In his own words, William Wilberforce, he's weak, he's terrified. He felt completely inadequate. Despite his fears, despite knowing powerful people would target him personally for his message, despite opposition that he was sure to face due to greed and comfort and ignorance, Wilberforce was convinced, he he was determined that he had to persist with this message. It took 18 years, but that message finally got through, and in 1807, the slave trade was abolished in England. There's much we could learn from a messenger like this, one who's so committed to the truth of his message. We get to see that in our passage today. We get to see this this humble, grace-dependent messenger who is completely transformed by the most powerful message in history. So follow along with me, if you would, in Ephesians chapter 3. We'll read 1 through 13 for for context. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. When you read this, You can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, 
the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. So if you were here last week, Mitchell summarized the beginning of chapter 3 as the mystery and the mission. So the mystery, we, we just read it from Ephesians 3, 6. The mystery is something that was hidden, that's now brought to light. We see it right there in verse 6. The mystery is that the Gentiles are included, you, me, us. That's the great plot twist, that this whole story has been pointing forward to the fact that we get to be in on it as believers in Christ. What he's done through his body, his blood, he writes us in to the redemption story. Mitchell told us the mystery revealed should then motivate us on mission throughout the world. Well, to keep with with Mitchell's completely, utterly on-point movie plot twist illustration, I love that thing, okay? It was a great illustration. It was so helpful to see that there was a plot twist there, okay? So if you didn't listen to last week's sermon, Sixth Sense, okay, he ruins it for you, all right? There's a plot twist here. This, This plot twist... Is it, so we're going to stay with, with the movie thought in the sense of here's the sequel, right? So last week we had mystery and mission. This week we have the messenger and the message, okay? But if you're sticking with me on sequels, sometimes those don't go so well, okay? <laughs> so we're, we're hoping for more Empire Strikes Back, a little less Alvin and the Chipmunks, the squeakle, okay? So we're, we're going to look at, at this messenger first and, and then the message, and we'll see the main idea, it just bubbles up. It comes, it comes clearly to light. That when Christ is the message, God equips the messenger. Christ is the message, God equips the messenger. So we know a lot about Paul. We know a lot about him. But how did he become a minister and a messenger of the gospel? Verse 7, of this gospel, I was made a minister. He was made we know from Acts 9, we know the dramatic conversion, right? This, this guy is breathing out murderous threats towards the church. An enemy of Christ is converted by Jesus. And why are you persecuting me, my church? He's transformed. He goes from an enemy to an actual instrument of the gospel to the Gentiles. We know from Galatians 1, 11 and 12, that Paul didn't come up with this message. It's not his opinion. It's not his thought. It's not this neat thing that, that he figured out. It, from Galatians 1, 11 and 12, we know that Jesus Christ himself revealed this gospel to Paul. It was given to him by Jesus. So what does it mean then that he's a minister of this gospel? The word minister, it means a, a lowly servant, an attendant, a slave, menial, like a, like a busboy, a waiter. Uh, is the, the thought here. And this gives us a, a glimpse into how Paul views himself. He's not just a messenger of the message, but a servant of it. Paul serves the gospel. And he does so not, not strong-armed into it, not begrudgingly. We see from this passage, he views it as a gift. He was given this message. 
He has to share it. So he sees this as a gift of God's grace and power. So right out of the gate, there, this applies to us. It applies to us. You, we all serve something. We all serve someone. We're all a minister to something. You, you can tell this by where you spend your time, where you spend your money, where you spend your thoughts. In other words, where your treasure is, there you will find the desires of your heart. But if you're a believer, you've been given the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is at work in you changing your desires to where you would want more of the message. You would want to share it. But I would ask that same Spirit to examine you this morning. So one of the reasons we're here is to come face to face with God's Word and be changed by it. Ask the Spirit to examine you. An impartial observer was, was looking in your life for the last week. What would he say? What would he say that you are a minister of? What do you serve? Is it comfort? Entertainment? Self? Perhaps it's, it's family. It's others. There's, there's growth there. But based on your actions or inactions the last week, what message is your life communicating to others? Some of you may be thinking, this, this does not apply to me. I'm not Paul. I'm not an elder. I'm not a missionary. I'm not a growth group leader. But as a believer, you are a messenger of the gospel. Paul uses this, this word minister. He uses the specific root of it in several places throughout Scripture. He refers to other servants, other partners in the faith in the same way. He talks about Timothy. He talks about Tychicus. He talks about Epaphras. He talks about Phoebe. All as servants of the faith, servants of the gospel. Those folks were normal people just like you and me whose lives were intersected by the gospel in such a dramatic way that they had to become servants of the message. So we'll see how this happens. The, the messenger is equipped by God's grace and power. Paul is made a minister of the gospel. We see it's a gift of God's grace in verse 7. He reiterates it in verse 8. It's God's grace. It's God's power. Paul is crystal clear that his role as a minister and messenger, it's utterly dependent on God. He understands that the same grace that saved him now equips him for ministry to the Gentiles. God's grace and power are at work in him. One of the clearest examples, it's, it's up on the screen, Colossians 1. So rich context here for what it looks like for a messenger to be empowered by God. I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. I'd like to stop there and give a sermon, but we're, we're gonna keep, we'll keep going. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom 
that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. That's how the messenger operates. He's warning, he's teaching, he's exhorting so that they will mature in Christ. How? He works. It's, he's working, he's struggling, he's toiling. But he does it according to verse 29 with all of God's energy that he powerfully works within him. Brothers and sisters, I want more of that. I want more of that power and grace. I want you to want more of that. That's my prayer for us, is that we would see as a church the grace and the power that we have been given by Christ and his Holy Spirit, and that we would toil and work together to present each other mature in Christ. That is the role of the messenger. So relying on God's grace and God's power, it, it leads to this interesting mixture. He's, he's bold, right? He's, he's proclaiming Christ. He's warning. He's admonishing. He's teaching. And he's humble. His boldness is mixed with humility. The messenger's humble and he's grace-dependent. So look back at, at verse 8 at how Paul describes himself. 3, 8 in Ephesians. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. To me, the very least. Paul actually invents a new word here. Okay, so grammar police, let's, let's give Paul a pass. All right, this is inspired scripture. He's, he's off the hook. All right, but he invents a new word here. It's leaster. He's lower than the least. There is no lower than the least, except Paul kind of invents that here. He's leaster than all the saints. He says it in the present tense. See that? Because even a few years later, nothing's changed. In 1 Timothy, he's communicating to Timothy. He's like, in, in chapter 1, I'm still the chief of sinners. I'm still the foremost of sinners. I'm thinking, Paul, really? Isn't this kind of hyperbole? Isn't he sort of overstating his case a little bit? Is this a little bit of false humility? Like sometimes we might put ourselves down in front of others, you know, fishing for a compliment from whoever we're, we're talking to. You know, I might be saying, honey, I'm, man, I'm so awkward in, in small talk. I'm so bad at it. You know, fishing for the, no, you're fine, you're good. But instead getting the, well, we all have different gifts. <laughs> Paul, it's not Paul. We'll insight into here, but that's not Paul, okay? Paul's not looking, he's not looking for a backhanded compliment. He's not looking for validation from the Ephesians. With Paul, we have a minister and a messenger of the gospel who carries in himself a beautiful gift from God. True humility. He actually sees himself clearly for who he is. He's an undeserving sinner, a chief. And he sees God for who he is, a generous giver of grace and power. He holds these true truths together. So that means that he can be unflinchingly honest about his sin and at the same time not beat himself up and say, there's no way I could share the gospel. There's no way I can be a minister of the gospel. I can't be used by God. No. Instead, he's joyfully confident in God. Why? Because he knows it isn't about him. 
He knows God's power and God's grace is at work in him. He knows that when Christ is the message, God will equip him to deliver that message. He's seen it over and over and over. Some of you sitting here, you're you're paralyzed by past sin and past failure. You're paralyzed by sin that you've committed or that's been committed against you. Maybe it's not something egregious like that. Maybe it's the the nonstop, monotonous, droning, persistent sin that you just cannot defeat. It's just over and over and over. And you have this sensitive conscience. You see your mixed motives. You see your up and down spiritual growth. And you look at it and you're like, man, it's more down than it is up. And you think, there's no way I can share the gospel. There's no, no way I'm meant to be a messenger. There's no way I can be used by God. Well, praise God that you're here. I'm so glad you're here. I pray this passage will encourage you because two things can be true at once. We can be deeply flawed, sinful people, and at the same time be used by God's grace to be a messenger of his gospel. Those two things can both be true. So so am I saying that that you should sin more so that grace may abound? By no means. I'm not not saying that, but I am saying that acute awareness of your own sin, your own weakness, your own failure, it's neither an excuse nor a disqualifier in being a messenger of the gospel. In fact, I would say in some ways it makes you more qualified. The closer that you realize to how much of a leaster that you are, the more humble you will be and the more desperate you will be to share the gospel with other people. If you're convinced of your own goodness, will you share it? I don't think so. If you're convinced of how much you need it, you have to share it. The messenger is equipped to be humble by the grace of God. A humble messenger rocked by grace can't wait to share the message. So as we look at the specifics of the message, we're going to have to continue to, to overlap with the messenger. They're, they're almost inseparable. This messenger has been transformed by the message. So we will continue to see both because the messenger is relentlessly focused, singularly focused, fixated on the message of the gospel. Why? The, the, why the gospel is the main point of verse 7. We see it by the way that the sentence is structured. Of this gospel, I was made a minister. Everything else follows of this gospel. So there can be a temptation when we hear that word. It's, it's come into favor in evangelicalism, I guess, in the last 10 years for, for gospel-centered everything. So it can be a temptation to to gospel fatigue. We become so familiar with it that we begin to take it for granted. If you've lived in East Tennessee for any amount of time, at some point you you stop seeing the the mountains and the sunrises and the sunsets like you once did, slowly losing our awe of the gospel is a legitimate temptation. So one way we guard against fatigue, we grow in our awe, is to consistently dig in Scripture 
for the ways the gospel is described. It's why we're taking our time in Ephesians, brothers and sisters. I want us to soak in it. I want us to see it. I want us to love it. In Ephesians alone, we have so many rich descriptions, pictures, comparisons, analogies that help us grasp what God has done in and through the gospel. These diverse pictures, they, they, they help us. It's, it's the same gospel. It's the same subject. But it's, it's like an, an artist with a painting who maybe one artist is emphasizing the lighting, the shadow. Another artist is, is emphasizing color saturation, something like that. But it's the same story, and we get to see it from different angles. You know, I got caught up in, in looking at these couple paintings about Daniel and the lion's den. Okay? We're familiar with that story. I mean, when I, when I look at this, this first picture, I see what is being communicated here. That's raw desperation. Every muscle in his body is, is tensed up in pleading for protection. It's an aspect of, of this story. In the next one, you see more of, a, of a, a quiet confidence in God. Same story, different emphasis. This is how we need to look, especially when we go back to Ephesians here. We see all of these, these rich words, descriptions, pictures. We see the gospel and its impact. And if you're looking at that, all six chapters, and you're a little bit overwhelmed by the amount of the words, I want you to be. I want you to be overwhelmed by the ways that the gospel's described and its implications because the gospel itself is overwhelming. Pick one of these. Pick one of these. First service people were taking pictures of the slide. Don't worry about that when Patrick posts it. He, he posts the PowerPoint as well. So pick one of these. Pick redemption. Okay, pick dead, made alive. Pick that you were once a stranger and far off, and now you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Pick marriage. What it really reflects that, that Christ came and laid his life down for his bride in order to make her holy, blameless, cleansing her, sanctifying her. It's so rich, brothers and sisters. This, this is how we don't lose our awe at the gospel. We dig and we look for it and we pray about it and we discuss it with each other and we remind each other. One book, 32 different ways to describe facets of the same gospel or eternal impacts accomplished through the gospel. And I'm sure I missed some. You can make the argument that I missed a lot. But this is how we don't grow tired of the message. It's in verse 7 that we, we see the gospel is the message. Verse 8 describes the message as unsearchable riches of Christ. The gospel and the riches of Christ, they're connected, but here's our first example of a different facet, a different angle. They're not identical. This is also not just what Jesus has done for us, but the riches that we have in Christ are who he is, not just what he's done. So this phrase, unsearchable riches, it's, it's utterly unique. It means riches that cannot be tracked, riches that are unfathomable, 
inexhaustible. So when you hear riches, what do you think of? Maybe it's Jeff Bezos. Maybe it's Elon Musk. You could be a billionaire and be completely spiritually bankrupt. But if you're a Christian, you are incomprehensibly wealthy. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. What does that mean? There's an immeasurable depth to the riches of Christ. It's it's bottomless. There is no end to what we have in him. This is what we're meant to see and understand. So look back to Ephesians. Here's the richness of Christ. His grace is rich. Chapter 1, verse 7. United to Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. His glorious inheritance is rich. Remember, this is where Paul was praying for our eyes to be opened, for us to see the hope that we have, for us to see that not only do we inherit God, he inherits us. His inheritance is rich. His mercy is rich. Because of God's rich mercy, in chapter 2, verse 4, we've been made alive and united to Christ. His kindness is rich. 2, 7, in Christ we receive wave after wave, unending wave of Christ's kindness forever. His glory is rich. Chapter 3, verse 16, why? So that you can be strengthened by the Spirit to know the love of Christ. There's something happening there. That glory is so rich so that we have the Spirit to know the height and depth and width and length of the love of Christ. Because of the Father's great love for you, you have all of these rich spiritual blessings. They're inexhaustible, they're unfathomable. Do you know you're rich? Or are you bound up and ensnared in earthly treasure? Is your heart experiencing the type of freedom and joy that comes with the unsearchable riches of Christ? It was this type of language that, that God used 16 years ago. And Chris Cowell invited me to lunch. And he asked me, he asked me why I was trading eternal treasure for trash and trinkets. Now, I didn't know that, that Chris was John Pipering me at the time, <laughs> okay? The trash and trinkets language, I had no idea. And you know what? I don't care. He, he didn't need to quote sources because in that moment, he was being a faithful messenger because he knew the power and the grace of the message. He knew that he was talking to somebody who was completely spiritually impoverished, and he knew that he was extending an invitation to him to invite him to the marriage supper of the Lamb to eat, to be rich, not in the way that the world counts riches, but in the way that Christ counts them. He was inviting me to the table. Do you know that you're rich? Maybe you do know. Maybe you're growing in this awareness of what you have in Christ. So the question is then, are you giving it away? Because if if these riches are fathomless, if they're inexhaustible, then it only compounds your joy 
to give it away. These are not riches to be hoarded, but to be shared. Pray. Ask God to put people in your life that you can share the riches of Christ with. Come to discipleship trainings for men and women. We'll talk exactly how to do that. And when you share, don't be afraid. Because it's not about you. I, I love the contrast that Paul does here. Again, look at it. He's, he's the leaster. And if you'll allow it, he, he's saying that Christ is the moster. Okay? It's this beautiful contrast. He's the least, but Christ, unsurpassing, unfathomable, inexhaustible riches. He's the moster. Okay? So you are the messenger, and God will equip you to share the message because the message is Christ. Now in verse 8, Paul gives specific instruction here in, in a way that he is communicating this message. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. There's instruction here for, for us, for elders, pastors, for you as our church. Paul said he was given this grace to preach so I'm not saying that our pastors or, or elders are, are Paul, that we're uh, apostles, but we are called to be ministers of the gospel and preachers of Christ. Therefore, our pastors and elders have a responsibility to you. For our new elders who've not served before, I'm not missing Kevin, he served before for his second tour of duty. He knows this. But for our new elders, David, hey David, Chuck, Mitchell, your role is to not preach yourself. Your role is to not preach your preferences, your programs, or your politics. Your role from this passage is to relentlessly preach the unsearchable riches of Christ, brothers. Your role as ministers and messengers of the gospel is not primarily to make financial decisions, to solve problems, or fix hard circumstances. Your role is to love and shepherd this body by bringing to light why Christ matters in the middle of our problems and our hard circumstances. Brothers, you are not to lord over this body, but you are to serve them. By the gift of God's grace and by the working of his power, whether in growth group, discipleship, counseling, in whatever joyful or dark situation you find yourself, you're to come underneath both the sinner and the sufferer, and bring them to the holiness and love of Christ. If you do step into this pulpit, you're to preach, preach Christ and Him crucified. We give every single Rock 101 membership class the same challenge. Hold the elders and preaching team accountable to preaching Christ. Every single sermon, you should be pointed to who He is. You should come away treasuring what he's done, and why it matters. Now, that's a strong word to our elders. Welcome to the first elders meeting. Okay, you get to sit in on that. It's a strong word to them, but it's, it's not only humbling, it's our joy. Brothers, I can speak for the elders. It is our joy to preach Christ to you. I love it. It is our joy to see you grow in your satisfaction, faith, love, and contentment of Christ. Church, the elders and the pastors, the preachers, 
They not only invite accountability, but we need your encouragement and your prayers. Pray for our holiness. Pray for our faithfulness to sound doctrine. Pray for unity in our families. Pray for Kelly and Hannah and Shannon to be encouraged in the Lord as their husbands serve. Now, it may surprise some of you to hear that a pastor or elder is, is pleading slash begging for your prayer and your encouragement. But we're fallible. We're human. So please pray for our hope and joy to always be in Christ. The moment you are a minister and messenger of Christ, you become a target. A target of the enemy, of your own sinful temptations and doubt. I can speak firsthand of a year ago, being face down on my floor, 30 minutes before growth group, unable to move, in tears, gripped by depression is inexplicable. Many of you know the direct assault of evil that this church came under during the last year. It seemed like it was out of left field. It wasn't. It was demonic. All that to say, please pray for us. Flip your bulletin over. Pray over those faces, those names, and those families. Find them. Encourage them. Pray for us that in spite of any weakness or attack, that we would have boldness and courage that we would be messengers relentlessly focused on the message of Christ. In Ephesians 6, verse 19, Paul asked the Ephesians to pray for him, to pray that words would be given to him when he opens his mouth to proclaim boldly the mystery of the gospel. So despite our William Wilberforce-like inadequacy, our, our fear our weakness, we are slaves to the only message that can actually set people free. We are servants of the gospel. We are messengers commissioned by the greatest messenger of all time, proclaiming the greatest message ever told. Let's pray with me. Father, As we, as we pray to you for courage and boldness, as we pray for one another, we know that we are praying to the one who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. And that's according to your power at work within us. So Father, please equip us by your Spirit Give us your grace and power. Help us not only know, but believe that when the message is Christ, you will equip your messengers. We can be certain of it. Help us, Father. Bring us your spirit as we are your messengers of Christ in this world. We pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.